the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Well, thanks, Dr. Bill. It's good to be with you all again on this summer Sunday afternoon here at KGFT in Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs, Olympic City, USA. You know, it was the British author Henry James who famously wrote, summer afternoon, summer afternoon. To me, those have always been the two most beautiful words in the English language. Well, hope you're having a great weekend wherever you are. Maybe you're coming home from church or just finishing up lunch. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I appreciate you Uh, sharing some of your time with us. You know, you have a lot of choices, and you chose KGFT and Salem Media. We don't take that for granted. Well, you're in in for a treat today. This show is about interesting and fascinating people who do interesting and fascinating things. And our guest for the whole hour fits that bill. His name is John Striege. Now, John is a best-selling author and biographer. He's also a columnist who had decades of experience in print and digital journalism. He's covered Major League Baseball, and most recently, he worked with Golf Digest, I think, for more than 30 years. John's most recent book was A Snowflake Named Hannah, Ethics, Faith, and the First Adoption of a Frozen Embryo. And then there was uh, several other books, When War Played Through, Golf During World War II, 18 Holes with Bing, Golf, Life, and Lessons from Dad, and uh, don't forget the work that really put him on the map, which was Tiger, which was the first biography of the legendary golfer Tiger Woods. So John is also one of us, and I'm, by that I mean he's not only a believer, uh, but he's also uh, a resident, right? Lives right here in Monument. Yep. So John, good to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. You've, um, you've been in town about a year and so, a little plus? Uh, two years. Okay. We're coming up on two years, yeah. And you came from San Diego, North San Diego County, yep. And when, when you told me you were, you were, we're friends, we've known each other right. for decades, and when you told me you were moving from San Diego to Monument, I was a little skeptical. I mean, you went from sunny skies to, uh, basically, it's like the last place snow melts is, is Monument. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we got a lot of that from the people, our friends back home, and Fallbrook, why are you doing this? But th- I mean, there were several reasons, but uh, we fell in love with the area. We've been coming to focus on the family Every year, virtually every year since 1997, fell in love with the area. Um, and our plan was, you know, once the weather turned cold, Marlene and I would both be retired and we'd, you know, go rent a place in Arizona or something for yeah. a month. And then she decided to go back to work recently with a school district, which, so she's working during the January, February, March months, so... And you're making dinner. And I'm making dinner, yep. Yeah, no, that's that's great. You know, I love the fact, I mean, you moved here, and it's a great place for writers. I'm always amazed, you know, when you hear about people who live here in town. There's a lot of people 
that a lot of listeners right now would recognize as terms of authors who live in Colorado Springs. I mean, of course, Dr. Dobson, uh, who founded Focus on the Family, he lives uh, up near Garden of the Gods. I mean, Jerry Jenkins, the famous Jerry Jenkins, yes. he lives near you, I think, out in Black Forest. Um, I did not know that. John Eldridge lives yeah. out here. And um, John MacArthur, I think, even has a, a summer place. He comes out here. So this is good air for uh, clear thinking and good writing. So you're in, you're in a good place. It's God's country, as <laughs> I like to call it. Amen. I know you can see almost the Air Force Academy from your house. Yes, can't we you? can. Yep. Sorry, but we have a lot of ground to cover today, but I have to start off. John, with a, the, probably maybe the most important question I'm going to ask you. Why do you despise exclamation points so much? <laughs> I get that all the time. It's just, it, you know, as a professional writer, you know, you, you do a lot of reading and studying. There's a lot of great authors that said you should almost never use an exclamation point because it's a, it becomes a crutch or a substitute for the words that you're supposed to use to explain it. So I get so much grief from people on Facebook for <laughs> For that, taking that stance. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that, you're a purist. That's good. <laughs> well, I try to be. I think it's worked out well for you. Yeah, thank you. So let's let's go back. I mean, I always love to hear people's origin stories. Um, you're from the Pacific Northwest. I was born in this uh, Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. Uh, lived there for five years. And then my dad started getting transferred. So we've lived all over the country. Uh, okay. So how many different moves did you make as a kid? So we go to Everett to Seattle. And so I went to Christian Lutheran uh, grade schools from kindergarten through eighth grade, five different ones. So we go Seattle. I was a Seattle Rainers minor league baseball fan. Then we go to move to St. Louis. I was a Cardinals fan for a year, moved to Kansas City for six months. So briefly was a Kansas City Athletics fan before they moved to Oakland. I'm old, as you can (laughs) tell. Then we moved to Detroit for three years. And I was a Tigers fan, and then moved out to California, Whittier, California, 1963. And I was in California ever since until the move here. Wow, those, I mean, all those stops uh, actually prepared you well for the careers you had, certainly as a, as a beat writer, uh, but we'll get, we'll get there. But first, tell me a little bit about your childhood. So you, you, you're born, and I'm not sure if you remember living in Washington, depending upon what age you moved. Yeah, very. I remember a little bit about when we lived in Seattle, and that's sort of when my love of baseball took root. Was playing catch with my dad when I was probably five years old out in front of the house uh, in in Seattle, across from Roosevelt High School. I still remember that. We didn't have a backyard, hmm. so you know. And he would and took me to a couple of Seattle Rainiers PCL games. Okay. Did you and pl- I fell in love with it immediately. So baseball was your sport or was it did you play them all? Uh well I played high school basketball as well as baseball, but baseball was always the first love. And yeah. I played golf most of my life, but not necessarily well. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a problem a lot of us have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But so baseball as a kid, uh, I mean, minor league ball, a major league ball had not yet made it to Seattle when you were a kid. Correct, yeah. And I was I was blessed because I've got two brothers. My older brother had no interest in sports, still doesn't really. My younger brother kind of took after me and got into sports some, but not as he actually became a sports writer, but not as into it as I was growing up. But my dad was a huge sports fan. And so, you know, I come along the number two son and 
you know, I couldn't get enough of it, and I'm sure he loved it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to have someone to share. I mean, as as fathers, we love it when we have someone to share, which I know is you as a father of a daughter, which we'll get to. Um, That's been a point of some comedic uh, banter. Yes. Yeah. But So as a kid, did you start playing Little League as early as you could? Uh, Yeah, and back then it was, you had to be, I think it was eight. We were living in Detroit when I started. Uh, But just to backtrack a little bit about my dad being a big sports fan. So when we lived in St. Louis, I'm sure I went to a couple Cardinals games. But in Kansas City back 1960, they used to play two All-Star games every year. And one of them was in Kansas City that year. He took me to that game. Uh, You know, I don't remember the game, but I've looked at the box score since. And, and, you know, Ted Williams, Roberto Clemente, and, you know, all these Mm. guys played. And I, I wish I could remember that, but I was too young. So then we, he took me to the college all-star football game. I don't know if you remember that one. The NFL champion would play college all-stars like really? in August at okay. Soldier Field. He took me to that. Um, now we moved to Michigan. I, I played Little League Baseball there at 9 and 10 it was. And then he got transferred out to Southern California in 63. And I resumed playing baseball. My dad took me to the third game of the – 63 World Series, um, Yankees, Dodgers, Dodgers won one to nothing. I'm sorry. I know you're a Yankees fan. <laughs> By then, the Yankees had had their share of wins. They had, yeah. yeah. So, he, I mean, I was, he exposed me to it, and, you know, I loved it from the you know, minute I first. The, the earliest game I remember seeing was walking to Tiger Stadium when we moved to Detroit and walking through the tunnel and seeing the green field and i'm going man this is awesome yeah there's something so magical i mean just that connection of baseball as a kid Mm -hmm. somebody i read recently somebody said the magical season for any kid who likes baseball is probably somewhere between the ages of eight and 13 yeah i would agree with that yes kind of where it's your era where you have very few cares in the world right you know the lineups you know the stats and you and you you rise and fall based on your team's successes or failures yeah so we're in detroit and i'm in that nine and ten year old range and i was always into reading so and i read i would get up ahead of my dad to get the sports section for the detroit free press in the morning just to see how the tigers had done the night before so i was reading newspapers going way back but wow wow that's great and so your what did your dad do for a living at that time, he was climbing the corporate ladder in the cigar business. And so you, I think he was regional sales manager in Detroit. When he got transferred to Southern California, he was the whole Western regional sales manager. And then, as I understand it, that's when cigar business kind of tanked. And, you know, it made a comeback many years later. But yeah. And then he got into the sporting goods business. He was vice president retail and advertising this is before chain sporting goods stores. Uh, his boss, they had three stores, two in Whittier, one in San Diego, and the largest school and team division in the country. Hmm. And so, you know, I had access to athletic equipment at a very low price, yeah. too. So that was nice. You must, uh, to this day, when you smell a cigar, does your dad come to mind immediately? You know, not not really, because I don't think he smoked him much. He did smoke early in his career cigarettes, early in his life, and, and then kicked that habit. But I don't remember 
him smoking cigars. Okay. Well, he was smart. He, yes. <laughs> a wise man. We talked a lot about your dad, but not much about your mom. So tell, tell us a little bit of who was your mom. She was fantastic. Uh, she became kind of a sports fan because she had to. She had three boys and, you know, a husband who was totally into it. Um, her thing was she loved to read. And she required us to read. She didn't care what we read growing up. But, and, you know, I got hooked on reading books early. Uh, this is probably predate you, but there used to be Claire B., the Hall of Fame basketball coach, wrote this series of books called um, Chip Hilton was a three-sport star, and, every, and they were designed for kids from, you know, 8 to 12. And it was, uh, they're collector's items now, but hmm. I had probably all 23 of, of those books. You still have them? No, I wish I kept oh. them. We donated them to a, a Christian grade school. Okay. But... So I read all the time. My mom was a reader, and, and when I look back, you know, my dad gave me the love of sports. My mom gave me the love of reading and words. And she was a good writer herself, not professionally, but just you could see it when she'd write a letter. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a great um, illustration of the power of a parent yes. and the power of two parents to influence someone for the rest of their life. Yeah. No, I, we were blessed. Yeah. So what, when did you get the bug in, in terms of, you know, your uh, kids have dreams. You probably, as a sports guy, maybe you dreamt of playing on a team, professional sports player. What, was that the case? Yeah, I, I definitely would, wanted to play Major League Baseball. Um, but, you know, 250 hitter in high school, that's ended it. You could have been the catcher for the Yankees. I mean, I, yeah, I could. Yeah. Hitting. That uh, their catcher doesn't normally hit over 200, it seems. Right. But yeah, I did. And, you know, I, I probably recognized it, you know, even before I went to high school, that it's probably not going to happen. Who, who was the greatest influence? Is like your mom and dad, obviously, a huge influence on your life. But there always seems to be somebody that touches our life when we're a teenager, maybe in high school, maybe college. Who would, who would that person be for you? Well, there was a, I had an eighth grade teacher at our he, seventh and eighth grade. I had him for two years at the Christian school in Whittier. Um, Trinity Lutheran, and he was a big sports fan. Uh, he was from Minnesota. He was a Twins fan. Uh, yet when the '65 World Series, Twins Dodgers, he actually let me have a. They played all day games. Let me have a transistor radio in class so I could provide him up updated scores on wow on the Twins. But he was a, a great man. And in eighth grade, we had a creative uh, writing assignment one time. Got a half an hour to write, and I forget how he set it up, but I didn't think of anything, so I just wrote like one sentence trying to be flip and funny, and I got it back. I failed to see the humor in this F, and it embarrassed me, Hmm. but uh, after that point, you know, I never failed to try, even if I had writer's block or you know, covering a baseball game or something, I, I gave it my all. Yeah. That, that was a great lesson. He became a great friend. He sang at our wedding. Um, and he passed away a few years ago, but uh, I've never forgotten him. Boy, what a, what a, what a way to correct you. It kind of in a, in a, in a rather straightforward, but yep. also very... I deserved in, it. Yeah, yeah. So at what point, though, did you kind of catch the bug where you thought, okay, I'm not going to play. Right. I, I want to write. I want and I want to be a sports writer because I mean that's a very. It sounds kind of like a romantic career. I mean, some certainly if you love sports, right? Uh, it's 
it's kind of a weird story. So I start high school. Uh, before my sophomore year, um, and, I, and I was a terrible student, i got to admit that up front, but my so- sophomore year, I've got to pick a select, an, an elective. I've got to take, you know, geometry and probably English too or something, but I, I needed a, an elective. And my mom suggests, why don't you do journalism? And my question is, what is journalism? I didn't know what the <laughs> word meant. So I signed up, and that's that. The journalism class was kind of to prepare you for the school newspaper. And so my junior year, I move on to the school newspaper. First assignment, they, I got to do, it was, it was a one-page sports section, a four-page paper weekly. Do a story on the con- cross-country team, meet. They needed nine inches, and I turned in seven inches. I turned it in late, blue deadline. Everybody's mad at me. That's how it started. Wow. Some things never change. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going, you know, I'm going nowhere in this business. But then I had a great journalism uh, teacher at that time. He was a professional journalist. And they had us uh, compete in, it was in all the high schools in East Los Angeles County. I don't know how many could have been 40 high schools on the spot writing contest. And he basically required us to go and in my category was sports writing and I forget how it was set up they'd play a half a game of basketball or something and then you'd have to write about it. I finished third in this competition among all these schools and it shocked everybody hmm. but this high school instructor took a liking or recognized something in me because he uh, suggested there was a high school journalism workshop at Cal State Fullerton which had a great journalism program for years and he says, I think you should do it. It's a two-week program. Okay, so over the summer, I go and do it. Um, they had a writing contest, uh, in-depth writing contest, and I won it. And I'm going, this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, yeah. from, where I was, from where I started. And then um, I start my senior year or junior year, and he hears there's the Whittier Daily News is looking for somebody just to answer phones on Friday night and Saturday night, giving out sports scores. Why don't you apply for it? I did, and I got the job. And after a time, they had me start doing sports roundups, high school roundups and things like that. And uh, now I start college. It's first semester of college, and I hear of an opening at the L.A. Times for kind of a similar job to to take high school scores on Friday and Saturday night and ended up working there throughout college. And that sort of got me jump-started. Wow. I, I wondered if listening to you and hearing about a high school student who got to do what you did and then as a young collegian getting to work for the LA Times, the, the thought strikes me that we don't give enough kids enough responsibility. You know, that it's almost like we don't think they're ready for it, but someone saw something in you and trusted you and gave you a chance. Yeah, and I've never forgotten about him either. His name was Don Chapman, and I actually traced him down a couple of years ago just to thank him and point out, you know, what you did for me was, was uh, it, you know, helped me help launch my career. Yeah, so you get through college. Where'd you go to college again? Uh, uh, Cal State Fullerton. Cal State Fullerton. Never graduated. Again, I was a terrible student, <laughs> and I... You know, I've said that over and over. Uh, I ended up going to college f- 
five and a half years or something, still didn't graduate. But I was also working four to midnight at the Los Angeles Times four days a week. And, you know, I finally decided I'm just going to get out into the workforce. I mean, historic newspaper, LA Times, right? Yes. What's that like for a young guy, you know, who's obviously crisscrossed the country, has been a lover of newspapers as a young kid? Right. You step into a newsroom. And I mean, you probably hear all the sounds and the sights and, you know, see all the things we kind of envision. Uh, not anymore, maybe in a typical newsroom. But back then, I mean, a lot of clanking and a lot of yelling and a lot of energy, right? Oh, guys smoking. and But yeah, and that's what kind of hooked me on the thing, you know, working on a Friday night or a Saturday night and seeing how this all came together and um, typewriters, you know, everything was typed. There were no computers, you know, the... AP and UPI machines going constantly in the back shop where everything's set in lead type. And you were a sports writer. And I mean, that's, that was your, that was your. Yeah. I, it eventually, it, it, you know, they found I could do these roundup high school roundups and I could do them quickly and cleanly. So that they started having me do all that and, it, and then had me doing more and more over time. Except when I when I really wanted a full time job, they had none, so I had to leave. But but it hooked me those those nights writing on deadline and yeah. just the excitement and you know when the paper comes out an hour later and you see it and you, you, see, know, your, you see your byline right yeah. I and mean, that's exciting. Yep. I, okay, I have to. This is a little self confession here. I've never admitted this to anybody, but I feel like you you would relate to this. When I was in high school, I was a junior. I was playing varsity baseball, and I was given the job to call in the game to the local paper, Newsday, right. which is a paper I wound up actually going to work for. And there was a guy on my team, his name was Howie Israeloff. I hope he's not listening now. But he was he just constantly gave me a hard time, constantly rode me for all different kinds of things. Well, we were playing Sawanica High School. He hits a home run, which means you get your name in the paper because right. he hit a home run. So when I called in the score that night, I didn't give the home run. I, I deliberately left it off. Oh. <laughs> and so the next day, he came, comes into school all fired up, and he says, I bought, went out to buy all these newspapers, and my name wasn't in the paper. And I, I kind of just shrugged, and I said, I'm not, sure, I'm not quite sure what happened there, Howie. So <laughs> That's so good. That was the only way I could get back at him. So, yes. I, Howie, if you're listening, please forgive me. Okay. But I have an interesting story, on, though, when I met the Whittier Daily News. So now I'm playing varsity baseball my senior year, and after the game, I have to go into the office to write the high school roundups. And I was leading hitter on my team, and they were unbylined roundups, but I was leading hitter on our team in that game. And I actually <laughs> wrote about myself getting two hits and leading the offense. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. Well, no one could no one could tell the story better than <laughs> right. better than you. So, how do you go from uh, you know L.A. Times covering? high school baseball to eventually covering, I mean, the team of the era, the Los Angeles Dodgers, California Angels. How does that happen? So, you know, when the Times didn't have a job for me at that time, uh, I got hired by the Orange County Register. It was, and it was a terrible paper when they hired me. And I'm taking no credit for making it. It eventually became a great newspaper. But it was a big moneymaker, family-owned several newspapers, including the Colorado Springs Gazette, I think, at the time. Um, But they started to, they made a lot of money and then started to hemorrhage money because it was not a good newspaper. And so they decided to, 
that's when I got hired. And then r- right away they started, no, we got to make this a good newspaper. And they hired, you know, well-known editors and made it into one of the top 10 sports sections in the country. So, but when I started, they weren't covering the Dodgers. They covered the Angels. And they decided, no, we got to cover the Dodgers too. Would you like to do it? And, you know, I'd never covered a Major League Baseball game in my life. Got thrown into it in the summer of 1978. I mean, what a a summer for the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? That made the World Series. uh, And then I did the Dodgers against 79 and 80. And then went over to the Angels in 81, 82, 83. And briefly back to the Dodgers in 84, and then I I got engaged, and I've gone, you know, I don't want to be doing baseball. You know, when you're married, it's brutal on marriages. So yeah, It sounds like a glamorous job to yeah. get to travel with the team and go all over the country and get to watch baseball and write about it. But it, it's a bit of a grind. I mean, it is night game it, after night game or day game after night game, even worse, I guess. Yeah, but it, it, there was some glamour to it because we were flying on. We had an advertising trade. All right, listen, when we come back, uh, there's a lot more to talk about. I want to hear about your great, great friendship with Tommy Lasorda, you know, how you became Tiger Woods' first biographer, um, an amazing, incredible, faith-filled story of adopting a daughter. Um, uh, Can you hold on here? I sure can. Okay, so this is, you're listening to 100.7 The Word, KGFT, here in Colorado Springs. I'm Paul Batura. I'm with John Strigi. We'll be right back after these messages. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 